Let's pray together. Well, Father, we ask that once again, by your spirit, you would open your word to us and open us to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, once again. Today, we jump back into the gospel of Luke, picking up very close to where we left off last Sunday with the famous parable told by Jesus, a parable that many of us have heard many times, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, last Sunday, we looked at chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. We walked verse by verse through the text, looking carefully at what Jesus was saying to us. But based on my conversations with many of you this past week and some emails and texts I've received, the only thing that any of you remember that I talked about was fajitas. (laughs) I happened to mention towards the end of my sermon last week that God uses us like a sizzling, smoking, delicious, flavorful, fragrant plate of fajitas to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And all week long, everywhere I've gone, someone has said something to me like this, I will never think of fajitas quite the same way again. (laughs) A young man, a member of this church, came to my house this past week to pick up something from my front porch, and he said to me, I'm not making this up, he said, good sermon, made me really hungry. So let me get this disclaimer out of the way here right at the beginning, okay? Today's sermon will make no mention of fajitas. I will not, this close to lunchtime, make you hungry by mentioning delicious, savory, sizzling, (laughs) fragrant fajitas. I will not remind you of their fragrance on triumphant procession through the dining room, nor will I keep repeating the words sizzling fajitas so often that you end up having no recollection of my sermon, but only recollection of said sizzling fajitas. Okay? Deal? All right. Disclaimer over. Now, please turn in your menus, I mean Bibles, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Through our gospel reading this morning, Jesus has a word for us. And it's a word that gets right to the heart of a fundamental question for every man and every woman, and the fundamental question is this, who is the center of your life? Who is the center of it? Frankly, according to the Bible, there are only two possible answers, two possible options. Option number one, behind door number one, is yourself. You are at the center of yourself. There, reigning on the throne of your will and your mind and your emotions and Your life sits you. Option number two, behind door number two, is Jesus. There on the throne of your life, on the throne of your heart and your will and your actions, sits Jesus. The life in which you reign at the center we'll call the selfish life. The life in which Jesus reigns at the center we'll call a gospel life. That'll be the framework we look at today's text through. Selfish life or gospel life? Through this parable, this famous parable that we've all heard many, many times, and through his interactions with a lawyer, Jesus makes something very clear to us. That a selfish life produces selfish love. But a gospel life 
produces gospel love. Two possible centers we see. Two possible kinds of lives. Two possible kinds of love. Could it be, could it be that all of the brokenness and hatred, oppression, racism, tribalism, polarization that we see in the culture and in the church is caused by our sinful selves reigning at the center of ourselves? Could it be that all of those things, brokenness, hatred, oppression, racism, tribalism, polarization, could it be that all of those things find their end and find their redemption in the person and in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. Yes, they do. So today, through his interactions with the lawyer and through his parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is going to challenge us, but not in the way we might think. This is not a surfacey challenge to surfacey behavior. This is a fundamental challenge to how we live. So look with me then at the first five verses here at the beginning, verses 25 through 29. This is where we see what I believe are the four pillars of the selfish life. And we all know these well because they're present in all of our hearts. Right here at the beginning of verse 25, the lawyer comes right out of the gate with his self-importance. Luke tells us that the man stands up, which means he had been sitting, which means Jesus had been teaching. He stands up and he, quote, put Jesus to the test. What audacity in this man. And what audacity we see in our own sinful nature that seeks to, you know, stand up, mono mano, man to man, equal to equal, with Jesus Christ and test him. The man's posture here indicates this was not just an innocent question. He was not just asking Jesus a question, trying to get information out of Jesus. He was seeking to test Jesus' competency. He was seeking to test Jesus' credentials. This is self-importance. This is self-importance here, to think that we can dare test the credentials or the competency of Jesus. Now we go on. The next half of the same verse, we see the man's self-righteousness. When he asks Jesus a question, starting with these words, what shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's been listening to Jesus, but he clearly hasn't heard Jesus. It's quite possible to listen to Jesus, and to listen to Jesus a lot, but not hear him. And the man shows that he clearly hadn't heard Jesus. He clearly had no understanding of the gospel, no understanding of grace, and is still under the impression that he can achieve salvation, eternal life, by works. This is the creed. This is the creed of self-righteousness here in the beginning of his question, what shall I do? But now, now, having seen the lawyer's self-importance and self-righteousness, Jesus asks the man a question. Look how quickly Jesus flips it around. The man thought he was testing Jesus, but Jesus is about to test the man. And he asks the man, what does God's law require? To the man's credit, he gets it right. He was paying attention in Sunday school, and Jesus tells him that. The man gives the same answer that Jesus would have given. He says, you can sum up the whole of God's law like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Even the church fathers 
said that these are like the two wings upon which the law of God is carried. So he gets it right, but then he gets it wrong again. Right after he gets it right, he gets it wrong. Isn't that comforting (laughs) for you and me? He gets it wrong, he gets it right. Gets it wrong, he gets it right. So not only now do we see his self-importance and his self-righteousness, but now we see in verse 29 his desire for self-justification. Luke, the author of this gospel, spots it from a mile away. He tells us, he tells us, the man asked the question, desiring to justify himself. Desiring to justify himself. He was clearly not succeeding in putting Jesus to the test. He could clearly tell that Jesus was painting him into a corner pretty quickly, and so he doesn't drop it. He doesn't sit down seeking to humble himself under Jesus' teaching. He stays standing, and he tries to make himself look good. This is self-justification, trying to make yourself look good. We can all see ourselves in this man, can't we? Because we're no different. It's interesting to read the Gospels. We read the Gospels, and so often... Reading the Gospels, it's like we're looking at a mirror. Looking at a mirror, we're seeing ourselves. But now the man is going to give Jesus the opening, the opening that Jesus has been waiting for when he reveals his own self-centeredness. He asks Jesus in verse 29 this question, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? By asking this question, the man reveals the Achilles heel of the kind of selfish love that flows out of the selfish life. And it's this. It assumes there is a scope to our neighborliness. It assumes there is a limit to who is our neighbor. This is self-centeredness. The selfish life produces selfish love. The lawyer's posture and questions revealed this, and Jesus uses this like as a softball to tell a story to tell a famous story to us, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's likely familiar to most of you. A man is traveling down a road. He is beaten. He is robbed. He is stripped. And he is left for dead. Person number one sees him, and it's a priest. You would hope that a priest would do something to help, but he actively chooses not to help. you got to watch out for these priests. Person number two sees him, and it's a Levite. Same thing happens. Passes by on the other side. We all know this story. The priest and the Levite in this parable told by Jesus are showing us the kind of selfish love that flows out of a selfish life. And it's a love that has a limit. It's a love that has a scope to its neighborliness. These men are more concerned with something else apparently than the human suffering right in front of their very eyes. And Jesus wants us to feel in our guts how wrong this is when we hear this parable, when we read this. He wants us to feel in our guts how contrary this is to his character. But this is the natural consequence, the natural overflow of a selfish life is selfish love. But here comes the gospel. Here comes the gospel, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he, the victim, Was And when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus communicates the scandal, the shock of the gospel, in the very fact that the hero of the story is the Samaritan. 
because Jesus' Jewish audience hated Samaritans. They hated them. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 48, when they want to insult Jesus, you know what they call him? A Samaritan. And now the Samaritan, in verse 34, goes to the man, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the Samaritan keeps loving. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And he keeps loving. He says, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Jesus is actively dismantling the lawyer's walls of neighborliness. And like Jesus is really, really good at doing, he's turning the tables over. He even turns the question over. Notice with me how the man had asked Jesus this question in verse 29. Who is my neighbor? Insinuating from my perspective. From my perspective, my point of privilege. Who, who do I deem as my neighbor? Who receives the privilege of me deeming to call them my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? But notice how Jesus corrects the man's question. He turns it upside down and inside out. Jesus frames the question from the half-dead man's perspective, from the victim's perspective. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is the heart of a God who cares for the widow and the orphan, the outcast and the oppressed. This is the heart of a God who comes to the aid of the abused the neglected, the overlooked, the victim, the survivor. And yet the lawyer reveals the hardness, the continued hardness of his heart and how he can't even bring himself in answering Jesus' question to even say out loud the ethnicity of the man who had proved to be a neighbor. He says stubbornly in verse 37, answering Jesus' question, the one who showed him mercy. Couldn't even say the Samaritan. Jesus is challenged to us. He's challenged to us through his interactions with this man and through this parable is to crucify that selfish life with its selfish love like we see acted out by the priest and the Levite and that we see present in the heart of the man testing Jesus and instead to live the gospel life. That's where we'll turn our attention to now, the gospel life. This is a life, the gospel life is a life that's also turned upside down. It's a life that's not lived by the rule, like this man was, the rule of what shall I do, but it's a life lived by the rule of what God has done. It's a life not lived to cause God's love, but because of God's love. Now, here's another way. Here's another way I could have preached this parable this morning. I could say, wow, look at that hard-hearted priest. Look at that hard-hearted Levite. And look at that generous Samaritan. You need to be less like that priest. You need to be less like that Levite. You need to be more like that good Samaritan. So go in peace this week to try harder Work harder at being a good person. And I'll see you next week and I'll check in with you and see if you did a better job.
at being a better person like the Good Samaritan. Have a good week. That's how I could have preached this, and that would be a travesty. It would make us feel more guilty, more burdened, more ashamed, more like a failure. Because here's how I should preach this parable. It's that Jesus himself shows how he is the good Samaritan. He is the one who comes to our rescue. He is the one who comes to us when we are left for dead, without any garments, without any means to save ourselves. The gospel life is a life lived in response to this good news of Jesus. And we see in this parable at least these three what I call resounding themes of the gospel. The first thing we see right at the beginning is unmerited love, God's unmerited love for us in Jesus Christ. The Samaritan sees the man dying, and Luke tells us he had compassion. What had the man on the side of the road stripped and beaten? What had the man done to earn the Samaritan's compassion? Nothing. I think of Romans 5.8 that says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What unmerited love we see on display. We also see unlimited grace because the Samaritan doesn't just give the man a, you know, a sip of water. He doesn't just call the man an Uber and then you know, get on his way. He binds up the man's wounds. He applies medicine. He puts him on his own animal. He takes him to an inn. He gives the innkeeper enough money to pay for the man's lodging for what could have been up to two months. And then he says, if that's not enough, I'll come back and pay it. Keep a running tab that I can cover this man's restoration. I think of Psalm 103 where David wrote, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. What unlimited grace we see on display in the Good Samaritan. And third, we see in this parable undeserved compassion. He doesn't deserve it. This man had been, the man who was beaten, had been walking down what was a notoriously dangerous road. He was by himself, like he shouldn't have been. He wasn't with a group of people to keep him safe like he should have been to help ensure his safety on this road. So it's not totally unfair to say the man could be blamed for having gotten robbed and beaten. You could say it was his fault. And yet the Good Samaritan showed him mercy. I think of Luke 19.10, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Listen to these words from Augustine, reflecting on this parable of the Good Samaritan. He writes, you have been found lying there by the passing and kindly Samaritan. Wine and oil have been poured on you. You have received the sacrament of the only begotten Son. You have been lifted onto his mule. You have believed that Christ became flesh. You have been brought to the end, and you are being cured in the church. Jesus is the good Samaritan. But even better than that, Jesus is the perfect Samaritan. And so a gospel life is a life lived in response to these resounding themes of the gospel that we see here. God's unmerited love, God's unlimited grace, God's undeserved compassion 
for us in Jesus Christ. This parable is meant to do two things. It's meant to show us the ugliness, the deadliness of selfish love. And it's meant, on the other hand, to show us the beauty of the gospel. Because the gospel produces this kind of love in us. When the gospel is present, when the gospel is present, this kind of love is present. When this kind of love is not present, the gospel is absent. We who have been shown grace, show grace. We who have been shown forgiveness, show forgiveness. We who have been shown mercy, show mercy. But this is increasingly difficult, isn't it? Because we are being taught and encouraged to destroy one another and to fight with one another, to seek to one-up one another and to enjoy ourselves while we do it. How many of our social media feeds or news feeds or news channels or talk shows feed this kind of ugliness? All of them. Correct answer. I have lost count now of the number of times I've seen a video recommended to me by the all-knowing YouTube algorithm that says, watch this person destroy this person. Or I've been in a conversation or a venue where I have heard a person on one side of the spectrum of an issue refer to another person on the other side of the spectrum of an issue like they are half-breeds. In these moments, what happens is we revert back to our sinful nature. We revert back to the selfish life and its selfish love. When we actively cross to the other side of the road, when we neglect the hurt of someone who is suffering or who is less fortunate or who has been abused, or even when we participate in their being hurt, or when we get enjoyment out of it, how dare we? This is abhorrent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is antithetical to the gospel. When we enjoy seeing someone get what we think they deserve, it is a sign that we have lost sight of the fact that in Christ, we have not gotten what we deserved. And we have received by grace what we do not deserve. When we limit the scope, when we limit the scope, of who qualifies as our neighbor or who deserves our attention, then we've forgotten the gospel. And to put it bluntly, when we forget the gospel, everything gets messed up. And so when the Holy Spirit, perhaps even now, reveals areas of our hearts that have grown hard, areas of our hearts where we're behaving like the priest or the Levite or that man, the Holy Spirit convicts us not to condemn us, but in order that we would run once again to Jesus, the good Samaritan, to Jesus, the good shepherd of our souls, and say, Jesus, turn my tables over. Jesus, reframe my questions. Jesus, turn my brain inside out. Jesus, give me your heart. About a year and a half ago, Coleman Tyler and I paid a visit to a dear saint of this church, Priscilla Eustace, just about two or three days before she died. And right before we left, Coleman turned back and said, Priscilla, any final advice for us young men? And so the last thing Priscilla ever said to me and to Coleman 
was the best advice is the old advice. And she quoted, of course, from memory, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Friends, that is the example of the Good Samaritan and that is the example of Jesus, the perfect Samaritan, but he doesn't just exemplify it. He enables it. The gospel not only displays Good Samaritan love, but it enables it and it exposes anything in our hearts or in the culture or in the church that is contrary to it and God works to remove it like the cancer that it is. Remember how the old famous Christmas carol puts it. Nothing like quoting a Christmas carol in July. It says, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. This is why Jesus came. This is why God the Father sent his only begotten Son into the world, into the filth and the mire and the darkness and the dreariness of a Bethlehem stable. This is why our holy God condescended into human form, that in his name all oppression should cease. So my prayer for myself and for my family and for you and for yours and for this church is that we would increasingly be a gospel people, living gospel lives, showing gospel love. What love, what grace, what compassion God has shown us in Christ. And so, Jesus' word to us from the end of verse 37 is, now you go and do likewise. So let's pray and ask for his help. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for sending your son, our good shepherd, our good Samaritan, our perfect Samaritan. Father, would you please give us the heart, give us the mind, give us the spirit of Christ that we would go to the oppressed, we would go to the hurt, that your love, O oh Christ, would shine through us. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.